Isaiah proclaimed God's message to the people of God. Yes, he did speak to other nations, but his primary target was the people of God. Isaiah 1 uh, sets forth the people's problem. And it has always been, they had a form of godliness, but they had not the power. This theme of powerless godliness interweaves Isaiah, so this has come up before. It's easy today to find examples. Many churches are moving away from God's word and moving in the direction of the world. We might even say that many are moving in the way of the ancient Canaanites who thought that they could manipulate their gods to do their own bidding. This seems to be Israel's problem in Isaiah 58 and 59. But is is it really just their problem? Is it just the problem of other churches? Do we not need to ask whether we too have the problem? Does not God call us to examine ourselves in the light of His Word? This morning I want to draw your attention to three details regarding powerless godliness. They are powerless godliness exposed, powerless godliness corrected, and powerless godliness replaced. So join with me in prayer. I'm going to use a prayer from Charles Spurgeon. Let's pray. Our Lord, let the whole militant church of Christ be blessed. Put power into all faithful ministries. Convert this country. Save it from abounding sin. Let all the nations of the earth know the Lord. Bring the church to break down all bonds of nationality, all limits of sex, and may we feel the blessed unity, which is the very glory of the church of Christ. Yea, let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Our prayer can never cease until we reach this point. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Nothing less can we ask for. Amen. Amen. Well, first of all, let me draw your attention to a powerless godliness exposed. You'll see that if you read chapter 58, 1 to 5, and chapter 59, 1 to 19, God really exposes the powerless godliness of the Israelites. He says in verse 1, cry loudly, you know, don't hold back. God speaks this, uh, through Isaiah. Isaiah is to, it's not a mere conversation here. Raise your voice like a trumpet. He wants him to be loud. <laughs> declare, my pe- declare to my people their transgression. Um, Isaiah is supposed to be faithful uh, to declare God's word even though people won't like it. He says, The people seek me by day and delight to know my ways. And that's a description of the transgressions in worship. They act like they they have an outward appearance, an outward form of godliness. And yet, they really don't mean what they... they don't have a, their heart is not in it. Um, they've fallen away from the Lord. And they, they daily seek to worship the Lord. They do it day by day, but they're not doing it because there's no reality to it. It's just an empty form. Um, they've done. Un- they have not. Uh, they uh, a nation that has done righteousness. Really, it has not forsaken the the ordinance of God. These are these are their attitudes. We haven't done any of this, um, and so they ask God for just decisions, uh, and they delight in the nearness of God. But it's all outward form. That's no. 
inward reality. So they ask the question, why have we fasted and thou dost not see? Um, <clears throat> fasting comes up in uh, Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, comes up later in Zechariah, but it's usually related to the sacrificial system. Um, but it also is related to humbling. Uh, they've afflicted themselves, is what Isaiah says, but that's a technical term for fasting. So they murmur at God's providence and complain of Him not accepting their worship um, because they're, they're placing their, their worship in something other than God. So they ask then, in connection with fasting, well, why have we humbled ourselves and thou hast not noticed? There's a connection between being humbled and being fat and fasting. It's humbling of yourself before the Lord. Um, they take pleasure in uh, the pursuit of things and they drive all their workers very hardly. They regard the fast actually as kind of an ordinary day, ordinary day of work. Sometimes fasting is associated with Sabbath, or at least closely at times. So they fast, but it's for contention and strife, Isaiah says. Um, they fast uh, and they strike a wicked fist. Um, instead of worship, their fast resulted in irritation and quarrels. Um, um, <laughs> I see this happening sometimes. In fact, I've seen it just recently. Where, um, if you just will think for a moment, you're associating fasting and the concept of worship, and worship is something that's supposed to be actually part of our regular life. It's not, you know, if we focus on a day and on a service, then we're not understanding worship correctly, though those things are true. Um, if that's our focus, then we're missing the point. Uh, so there, they have, they have their worship service, and they have their fast. So they're practicing their worship in an outward form, but the result is irritation and quarrels. They're not getting along. They don't get along with each other. Um, they don't fast like they were doing in Isaiah's day. They were evidently fasting because they wanted God to hear them, but that's not what they were normally doing. Um, so it's not a fast like God would choose, a fast in which a man would humble himself before God. He said it's like a bowing one's head like a reed. A reed bends very easily. You know, they stand up straight, but the wind blows. doesn't take much wind to blow them over. And uh, they spread out the sackcloth and the ashes, you know, so they, they look good on the outside. Um, but the reality is um, there's no genuine marks of repentance. If those things are there and there are genuine marks of repentance, then there's valid worship. But if there's not the genuine marks of repentance accompanying those, those, um, those practices, then what you have is empty form. You don't have reality. Now, let's ask for a moment, what, what, what is a fast? Why, why did they fast in the Old Testament? Well, I'll just draw your attention to a few Old Testament passages that uh, expose some of the reasons why. Um, for example, in Ezra chapter 8, <clears throat> Um, Ezra brought the heads of the household and the genealogical uh, enrollment with him from Babylon uh, uh, during the reign of Artaxerxes. And so he assembled them at the river Ahav Ahava. So um, they uh, were there and they camped for three days. Uh, and he, Ezra observed that there were no priests and so he sent back to Babylon, got some priests and they came. And so when they got there, uh, then uh, Ezra says, I proclaimed a fast at the river of Ahava that we might 
humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones and our possessions. So it was a fast for provision of grace. So there's a reason that you fast. Not You don't just do it outwardly so everybody looks like the Pharisees said, you know, I fast three times a week, that kind of thing. All that is empty, empty godliness. Powerless godliness. Then we also see, remember David, when uh, Bathsheba gave birth to their son that was born, that was conceived uh, in adultery. God took the baby's life. So David, <clears throat> David fasted before the Lord when the baby got sick. And he was uh, praying and fasting for seven days. And his servants would come and they would say, you have to eat, you have to eat. And he'd say, no. And he fasted before the Lord. Well, um, when, they, when he finally found out that day that the baby died, um, he, he got up and he asked for food. And so the servants said, well, why are you eating now? You know, you fasted before and now you're eating. You know, why are you doing this? And this is David's words. He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So the fasting is associated again, the idea of asking God, God for grace. So you see the same thing um, on the Day of Atonement. What are they seeking? They're, they're seeking the face of God. They're seeking His grace. And that's why fasting and humbling are correlated with one another um, all through the Bible, even if humility is not mentioned. That's the underlying idea. You're humbling yourself before God. Israel was not uh, doing that. And so Isaiah continues to delineate the sins of the people. He says, uh, you know, the Lord's hands are not short. Um, He says, your iniquities have caused a separation between you and God. Now that word separation is used in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1 verse 6 and verse 14 where it's talking about the separation of, uh, of the firmament. Remember God separated, separated, put a firmament to make a separation. It occurs later when it separates the day from the night. It's the light. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a separation of, um, uh, and this is the kind of thing that's separated. It's that kind of idea that separates God because of their sin. There's a separation between him to make a, draw a contrast. Um, he's hidden his face, which is just another way of saying the same thing. And why, why is he doing that? Well, he gives some illustrations. He says, your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers are full of iniquity. Um, he says, your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Um, he's dealing with people who are not treating other people properly. He says, no one sues righteously. No one pleads honestly. No one calls for justice. No one does. No one pleads for truth. Um, they trust empty words. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. What, what, what are they doing? They're violating the ninth commandment. <coughs> They're violating the ninth commandment. They're violating Leviticus 19. Love your neighbors yourself. That's exactly what they're doing. All of these sins are listed are related both to God and to man. They're sinning against God by not worshiping Him correctly. They're sinning against man because they're not treating Him properly. They bring forth mischief and iniquity. Um, that word that's used uh, for mischief is often employed with the nuance of drudgery of toil rather than nobility of labor. You know, 
somebody works hard and they don't see it as noble, it's actually, they're being, well, it's like they're being oppressed, they're a slave. And so um, it relates to the dark side of labor, the grievous, the grievous and unfulfilling aspect of work. Uh, Moses uses that term in Psalm 90 verse 10. The years of our life are 70 or even if by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. And they are soon gone and we fly away. Toil and trouble, that's what it's like. Well, that's what God is saying these people are. Only in relation to one another, they conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. There's all these images that are really kind of amazing. They, they hatch adder's eggs, and if you crush them, a snake will come out. Just, the evil produces more evil is what I think the picture is. The idea of the webs in verse uh, 6, is it? Um, webs, is it not fast? Is it loose in the bonds? No, that's not it. Um, uh, yes, webs. Webs, yeah. Why would he say webs? Well, because webs really don't work very well as clothes. Um, uh, they're not suitable. <laughs> you know, it's the works of evil men are not suitable. They're like a spider's web being used for clothes. Uh, they, they can't cover themselves with their works because their works are iniquity. They're an act of violence. It's in their hand. Now, if you look at the next verse, their feet run to evil, you're reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 18. Now listen to what Isaiah says. In fact, it sounds like Paul's quoting him, at least at some places. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed blood. Their thoughts are of iniquity. Uh, um, they do not know the way of the peace. Uh, there is no justice in their tracks. Uh, they have paths crooked. Um, those, those ideas come up in Romans chapter 3. Remember where Paul says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? He describes what that is in Romans 3. And all, a lot of that comes right out of Isaiah chapter 58. So their righteousness uh, is worthless. That's what it comes down to. They don't treat God properly, and they don't treat one another properly. And that's pretty much a summary of Isaiah's exposition of powerless godliness. So we move on then to the second point, and that is Powerless godliness corrected. Chapter 58, verses 6 through 14. And I'm pulling words out of these places, so please understand. First of all, he talks about the true fast. He says, is this not the fast that I choose? So you want to know what a fast is? It's not humbling yourself and not eating, though that could be. But God says, this is a true fast, to loosen the bonds of wickedness. That could refer to slaves who are unjustly held. It may refer to other things. In Jeremiah, it refers to slaves who are unjustly held. Loosing the bonds of wickedness. Taking the yoke. That's what that word is, bond. Taking the yoke off of their shoulder. Breaking it off of their shoulder. In other words, to let the oppressed go free. That's the next clause. And these three clauses imply the freedom from oppression. They are to break every yoke. And then he says, that's one thing. Is it, and then he says, is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? Uh, the oppressed are evidently homeless. 
Are you to bring the homeless poor into your house? To, re- to refuse to act humanly to anyone in need? Is that what they were doing? Is that sometimes some, what, what I do? When you see the naked, you, you need to cover them? That's a fast of God. It reminds me of the Lord's words, doesn't it? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. He says, don't hide yourself from your own flesh. He means by that probably his, their own people, but it may be that it can go beyond that. But especially in the church. Should we not be taking care of people in the church? He says, if we do, he said, if they do that, if we do that, then our light's going to break forth like the dawn. In other words, the change is going to be sudden. You know, he says it break forth like the dawn. We don't have the same experience here because of the mountains. But in the east, when the dawn breaks forth, it just goes from night to day. Bam. It's real quick. Um, we're here, it's more gradual. <laughs> but when the sun comes up at 4 o'clock in the morning in the east, it comes up. <laughs> and it's hot by noon. You've got to take a nap or get out of the sunlight. But... Um, so he says that's the way our righteousness is going to spring forth, just like that. And, and, our, and the righteousness is going to go before uh, the people. What's, what's he talking about? Well, I, the righteousness is the Lord himself. He is our righteousness. In Jeremiah 33:16, we read, In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And in um, Isaiah fifty four seventeen, the New King James Version translates it, I think, more accurately. Uh, and I quote, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. That was part of the problem that, that they had. They believed their righteousness came from themselves, and they needed to understand that the righteousness had to come from God. In other words, living in light of the Lord, living the way the Lord tells us to do, our righteousness comes from Him. And as we know in the New Testament, our righteousness is imputed to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So So that's the first thing. It has to do with the fast. The second is the true Sabbath. So we're correcting the powerless godliness and he, uh, by addressing these two issues, the true fast and the true Sabbath. He says in verse 13, if because of the, Sabbath, of the Sabbath you turn your foot, honor the Sabbath, that is, take delight in the Lord, turn your foot away from doing your own pleasure on my holy day. Call the Sabbath the delight, the holy, of the, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and you shall honor it, desisting from your own ways. I want you to notice something uh, in the description there in verses uh, 13. I want uh, verse 13, just in the last part. And honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and, and speaking your own word. What does that remind you of? Well, it should remind you of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, section 8, and larger catechism 115 to 121. Because that's exactly what it says. It expands on that a little more, but that's that's the heart of what it's saying. Um, but what we need to understand, well, we need to understand a couple things. 
The Sabbath is not merely a Mosaic law. It was really instituted at creation. And it was intended for the redeemed to enjoy the presence of their God. In the great calamity of the exile that was to come upon them, Isaiah stresses the Sabbath as, in a sense, the heart of true devotion to God. He who keeps the Sabbath that is is intended uh, to be kept will be happy in the Lord of the Sabbath. Those are... That comment is from E.J. Young. Now here's the problem. Too often people focus on the day. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have the Lord's Day. I don't mean that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't get together on the Lord's Day. I don't mean that. But we can do that and miss the point. We can do that and not be devoted to God because that's what they were doing. They were doing things, but they were treating God like the Canaanites would treat their God. They wanted to get things out of Him. You know, let's just do whatever and, you know, God will give us our way. And that's not, we can't do that. That's not devotion to the Lord. And so God wants us to be devoted to Him. And the Sabbath, we could say, might be a reflection of that. But if we keep a day and miss the heart of the thing, then we're not really. Um, we're not really devoted to the Lord. When the Pharisees asked Jesus, <clears throat> what is the great commandment? He didn't say the great commandment is to keep the Sabbath. Right? No. What did he say? He said the great commandment is this. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, all your mind. Okay? That's the first and great commandment. Yes. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everyone who loves themselves, even even those who hate themselves, love themselves. Everybody loves themselves. I mean, I know, because I hate myself a lot of times, and all of this is because I love myself so much. I think I should be something I'm not or something. I'm always, you know, and I hate myself because I'm not living up to, well, why? Well, I want to look good to other people. I want to impress you? What is, what is the reason? Why, why is it that way? Well, because I love myself. I feed myself, don't I? We do. We take care of our body. We make sure that we, you know, however we got to do it, we'll do it. If we didn't love ourselves, I think we would just lay down and die. And God didn't make us to, to do that. But we're not supposed to love ourselves first. We're supposed to love ourselves because we love God. Um, the basic point is to do unto others what you would have done for yourself. And that's what Isaiah has been talking about. Do you feed and clothe yourself? Well, then think about those whom you could help feed and clothe. You don't have to give them brand new clothes. You, know? you, don't, have to, you don't have to buy them T-bone steaks. Um, one of the things I've noticed in Albuquerque, and I put this on my Facebook, and, and I think we should be thankful for it, is that um, people in Albuquerque have stepped up to the plate. Um, there are people volunteering to stand in line and hand out food, you know, give it to people as they drive by. Sure, they got masks and gloves on, but they put pe- food in people's car for people who need it. Neighbors are going shopping for their elderly neighbors. People in the East Mountain, they're shopping for their neighbors who can't get out, or they're shopping for their neighbors so not so, so many people won't flood the stores. You know, they call their neighbors, I'm going to the store, is there anything you can you need? I look at that and I say, you know, that's God's grace. It, it, they may not be Christians, but that's what we call common grace. 
And if we see that in unbelievers, then we should see it in ourselves more so. So we've considered powerless godliness exposed. We've considered its correction. Now I want to turn finally to its replacement. Its replacement, chapter 58, 9, verses 18 through 21. When God looked and he saw that uh, uh, he was displeased um, because there was no justice, and he saw there was no man who, 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 would, who, would in, who was there to intercede. What does he mean, no man there to intercede? Um, the commentators have read that it's, no one's interceding on behalf of the Lord. Nobody's defending him. Nobody's saying, hey, this is, what, this is what the Lord wants from us. Nobody's standing there doing that. So nobody's standing the breach, as it were, between the people and their sin and God. So what is the consequence? Well, then he brings his own salvation. Or we could say, so then the Lord brought forth his arm of salvation and uh, his righteousness upheld him. And I want you to notice again the words that are, that are here. Um, listen to this. His righteousness upheld him, and he put on righteousness like a breastplate. And that's both defensive and offensive, right? You, you attack the enemy, and you defend yourself against the enemy. But, so the Lord's being attacked by people. He's not being treated properly. Nobody's defending him. So he's going to take the offensive. But notice, again, he put on a breastplate of righteousness, but he also put on a helmet of salvation. He put that on his head. What does that sound like? Galatians. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 6. Take up the whole armor of God, right? The whole armor of God, take it up. And what does Paul say? Put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, you know, put on this belt and shod your feet with the, you know, the gospel of peace. I mean, really. All this imagery, it, it comes in, in the New Testament, and it, here it's talking about God. And So what we're supposed to do, as I understand it then, is to take up the armor that God takes up. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to be an image bearer of God in that sense as well. That we're to, we're to stand like He wants us to stand. And so then God rises up to save, but He also rises up to judge. The Lord is the one who judges. The idea seems to be that wherever the enemy comes upon God's people, again, E.J. Young said this, Like a flood of all-engulfing water, the Lord, in the very midst of the waters, raises a standard, thus showing that He is in control of the situation. Hence, no enemy can conquer His people. He is ever present to subdue such an enemy and to show His sovereignty. For this reason, men from the east and from the setting of the sun are going to worship Him. In other words, God's enemies are God's enemies of God's people too. And God is going to God is going to stop it. He's going to bring about a change. Well, then we ask, well, how is He going to bring about the change? Well, He's going to send a Redeemer. I want you to notice something in chapter 59. Right. uh, Verse 20. A Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. A Redeemer is going to come to Zion. Now I want you to notice... 
the way that this is structured. In verse 21 we go, I mean, uh, in verse 20, and a Redeemer will come from Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. I want you to notice there's an emphasis here. The quote comes before the declaration from the Lord. In each case, it's three times. Um... Uh, to those who turn from transgression and Jacob, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and the words I put in your mouth, says the Lord from now on forevermore. Right? Why three times? Why three times? It could have all been put into one sentence. It could have said, uh, those who turn from transgression in Jacob, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, my spirit shall be upon you, and my words that I put in your mouth, they'll they'll be in your offspring's mouth, and uh, that's going to be from now on forevermore, says the Lord. It's that easy. Right? That's how easy it is. But it's not stated that way. So you ask yourself, well, why do it that way? Well, because... I believe God is saying, my word will be fulfilled. Okay? My word will be fulfilled. Steve, you want to sit down? Thanks. My word will be fulfilled. Remember the writer of Hebrews says, when he refers to Abraham, he said, well, God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Right? This is, this is kind of a... a, a This is what God is doing here. He's swearing by himself. Declares the Lord, says the Lord, says the Lord. God's word will be fulfilled. We need to take that to the bank. That's what we can count on. So we've seen then God's exposition of powerless godliness. Uh, We've seen powerlessness, uh, powerless godliness, uh, um, um, changed, addressed. And then we've seen godless powerlessness replaced. Well, in conclusion then, we live in difficult days, don't we? We are tempted on every side to unfaithfulness. After all, if we would just make some adjustments, we could bring in the crowds. We really could. I could start wearing shorts and a t-shirt and, you know, whatever else we need to do. And I know that and I'm not saying that the people that change, you know, uh, oftentimes people misunderstand me like I'm saying you're condemning those people. No, I'm not. I don't have the right to condemn anybody. All I'm saying is that if we wanted to, if our focus was growth, then that would be easy for us to produce because people do it all the time. I probably wouldn't be the one to be the preacher. We'd have to have somebody in here who was a little more dynamic. But the reality is, if you want to do that, you could bring in the crowds. Are those people therefore not Christians? I mean, that's not even the point. The, the question is, what do we want to do? This is our question. Do we want, to, do we want a ministry that appears to be successful, and it may be successful? Or do we want a ministry that's faithful? Where should our focus be? Our focus should be on faithfulness. 
we may be successful in that and we may not be successful, but at that point we're saying, God, whatever you want to do, that's what we'll do. Right? That's, that's our point. That's where we live today. And there's always this temptation. There's always these battles going on. And actually, I kind of get tired of them. I just want us to understand where our focus is. It's, it's on faithfulness. It's not on success. If God wants to give us success, He will. I, I just think we need to be faithful to His Word. But secondly, then, we have our current crisis, and that tempts us as well. Because we ask ourselves, where's God in this temp- pandemic? Does He care? I mean, look how many people died in New York City overnight. I mean, look how many people are dying around the world. How many more are going to die? Well, he was, He's here. He's taking care of us. Um, the reality is, He was there in the plague of uh, 15, what, 18? He was in the plague there. He was there in the plague when, when the Reformation was going. He was there in the plague in the 13th century and wiped out half the population of Europe. Where was God then? Well, he was there. Why would that happen to people? Well, you know, I mean, I could say that this was because of rats in one sense, but uh, isn't God sovereign over that stuff? Yes, he is. Why does he let that happen? I don't know. We live in a fallen world, folks, and we're going to experience fallen crises. And there's nothing we can do except hold on to the Lord who tells us that He will never leave us or forsake us. But again, how do we know that God is involved in this? Well, we have people all over the world, and I mean, even in China, for goodness sake, they were, they were honoring their doctors who put their lives on the line for people. Um, people volunteering like we've seen here. Um, people are out doing that. I mean, think of the medical personnel. My daughter, she has to go out and take care of the elderly, and um, she's, you know, she has to see them every day. I mean, they're trying to limit the people they see, but the fact is, you know, <clears throat> she puts her health on the line too. Um, I know she gets paid for that, but you know, the point is, you're doing that because you, you're a nurse because you love the people. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be a nurse. Hey, I wouldn't. Then, not that I don't love people, but I don't want to do. I couldn't take care of them. So, so what we need to do is lift our hearts and voices in praise to God. And we need to remember that God has promised us, "I will never leave you or forsake you." He did not forsake His Old Testament saints. He did not forsake His New Testament saints. He will not forsake us, no matter what happens. We belong to the Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us access to the Father and the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and to help us to become the people God calls us to be in loving Him with our heart, soul, and mind and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do give you thanks for your love and your goodness to us. We do pray that you would... um, Well, first of all, grant us wisdom and insight at this time. We, We need it. We don't want to panic, but we do want to be cautious. I mean, there's nothing wrong with caution. Uh, we don't want to throw caution to the wind, but we want to, don't want to be so scared and panicked that we, we can't move. We've got to realize that we have to trust in you, and we have to love you with our heart, soul, and strength. Father, thank you for your word. And may it be, as, I, as, as Spurgeon prayed many years ago, may our prayer be, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can't ask for any more. And so we won't. In Christ's name, amen.